This is Dalio's Principles, a philosophical examination. The unofficial podcast companion for Ray Dalio's book, Principles. This podcast will deeply explore the book and principles. The podcast is hosted by Micah Bays and John Sextro. Micah has a PhD in philosophy and has taught numerous college philosophy courses, including The Meaning of Life, Ethics, and Reason and Argument. John shares his perspective from years of experience trying to live out Ray's principles in his life and work. I'm Micah Bays. I'm John Sextro. This week on the podcast, we're going to be talking about episode, no, not episode, I did that again, Micah. We're going to be talking about chapter five. This is uh, the sixth episode of our conversations. Since we started with the introduction, the chapters and the episodes don't exactly match up. But a real quick uh, recap of the chapter, uh, chapter five, and then we'll, we'll dive, into, dive deeper into some of the topics. Uh, the title of this chapter is The Ultimate Boon. It covers time span from 1995 to 2010 in the history of Bridgewater and Ray Dalio. He talks a lot about um, setting up a trust for his family so that they can, uh, they can benefit from his wealth over time, figuring out how to have that long-term wealth where it can really weather the storm of economies and how he goes about that. Uh, he, he goes through this, this uh, decision as to whether or not to be try and grow Bridgewater into a huge company or keep it a small boutique, and uh, that he, he's weighing the pros and cons there, really starts to get into principles more, and we'll come back and, and talk a lot more about the principles. And then his discovery of psychometric testing, and we'll talk what about all that is and what that means about creating baseball cards to sort of uh, encapsulate individuals in their traits, just like you would see in baseball cards. Did you have baseball cards when you were a kid, Micah? I did. I was actually more of a football card guy, but I did have same some. idea. Yeah. So we'll come back and talk about that. Uh, the, in the book, they go on to talk about being on the cutting edge and trying to remain solid in, in, their, uh, in their estimates and, and predictions. And then dealing with a potential economic crisis in 2008, helping out the policymakers, making great returns, and then sort of wrapping up um, with uh, how Bridgewater would go on to succeed in a world where Ray has has retired or moved on in his life. And so that's a, a real quick, high-level synopsis of the chapter, I think. Micah, some of the things we wanted to go a little bit deeper on for all of our listeners, some of the really interesting stuff was, was more about the principles. So um, what did you see? What did you experience? Or what did you learn as you were reading more about how those principles were coming about? Yeah, I, you know, I think one interesting thing for me was kind of how late in the game uh, principles came around uh, for Ray. Uh, he talked about, you know, he's talked earlier about how he would write down whatever, you know, his thinking was as to, you know, investment strategies and um, keeping a record of those. So then he could revisit them and then reapply them and then input them into algorithms. <clears throat> but as far as just his general principles about how to go about things, right, in general, whether in life or um, in business, those general principles he didn't really start formulating or putting down 
until later, um, you know, until, you know, this time period, you know, mid late nineties. Um, so I found that interesting. I thought maybe he would have done that earlier. I think he maybe started to see, uh, and just, you know, reading between the lines in the book, if you will, that, uh, he started to see at the, around the time when his close advisors came to him and said, you know, you, you, uh, some people don't understand your approach. Some people don't are afraid of you or, or whatever that was, you know, he, he talked about that intractable people problem that he was having, Mm -hmm. uh, that maybe that was where like the seed was planted and it just was maybe starting to write some things down, but not, not becoming a full speed in terms of creating principles until the mid nineties. Right. Yeah, yeah, it did seem just like a matter of circumstances that he realized, hey, there's this need for these things to be written down so people can be aware of them and discuss them, and so then they can also be debated. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because you see this in you see in companies all of the time that there are um, patterns to patterns to dealing with situations, or there's just patterns to situations in general. What sort of things are going on inside of companies? Hiring firing people leaving the company p- promoting people within the company dealing with contra- uh dealing with the conflict dealing with disagreement you know just the 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 nuts and bolts the blocking and tackling of running an organization and the unique thing that I think they did in this case that Dalio does in this case is really start to write those down and say I think that this is a good way to handle that situation as a principle allowing people to stand on top of that, use that information or to debate it and say, no, it's, there's another better way to handle it. And it's like this. And then a lot, allow that idea and that principle to evolve. Mm-hmm. So uh, Micah, th- that's not unusual, I guess, that there are these situations, that there are these patterns, but that there are then these, these principles to deal with those. How does that how does that appeal to you philosophically or does it or what are the philosophical implications of having principles to deal with these rote patterns, so to speak? Right. I mean, I think on the one hand that you know, I start thinking about or questioning is this gonna be too simplistic of a dealing with these things, right? To try and lump dealing with hirings or dealing with firings, you know, treating firing as another one of those as he puts it. Is that too, I'm going to say, coarse-grained? Is it, you know, not take into account all of the different variables? And so you almost wonder, well, can you really come up with good principles that deal with all the variables that are involved in the firing of a person? Or, right, because there's one, on the one hand, you might be, you know, how is this person going to receive it? So what's the good way to fire someone? Um, obviously, other questions are, when is it appropriate to fire someone? And so there's a concern about, for the success of the company. Um, and so then it seems like, well, what kind of company are you in, right? That might determine whether someone's worth being fired or not. Um, and so, right, those are just a few variables and we could, you know, figure out some more. Right. And so it just seems like, well, is this too difficult to really have good principles for, you know, these particular situations? Is that too simplistic of a way to think about it? But, you know, on the other hand, it's like, well, we do deal with life things as just another one of those quite often, right? So uh, just think about when you cross the street, 
right? What we tend to do is pick out the salient aspects of the situation. figure out how many leaves are on that tree. Um, Hey, there's, you know, a house, you know, 300 feet down. Let me look at what color it is, right? All of those things you just kind of set aside. You're able to ignore. And what you look at is, is there a car coming, right? Um, If there is, how fast is it going? Um, And so just intuitively, we've learned how to deal with situations, as you might say, another one of those. You don't have to assess everything. We just pick out what's most important or the most important features and deal with those. Mike, if you peel that back for a moment, what you mentioned that was the actual principle there was to to look for cars, look both ways for our cars coming. No one tells you to assess how fast the cars are coming or how to take a step off of the curb and onto the street. So, so the, the basic principle sets you up to be in the right mindset, right? Mm -hmm. To deal with the circumstance without being prescriptive to you about what are all of the surrounding things. So as a principle and as a, as just sort of like a guiding, uh, a guiding philosophical thing to do, it's not prescriptive. Therefore the things while they are simplistically uh, phrased and are, are small, they can be, they can sort of be very encompassing of a situation and flexible to a situation based on the realities of that situation while just keeping you focused, like you said, focused on the salient things, those things that are just really the most important. Right. Yep. And yeah, that's one thing with my daughters and we go on uh, walks and they ride their scooters and they like to, you know, go down the, down the street away from us for a while. And, you know, typically we have them, be on the left side of the street so they can see oncoming traffic. But if they're going to start going up a hill, I don't want them on the left side because then the car that's coming toward them can't see them because of the hill. So I want them to cross over to the right side. And so, right. I'm trying to get the goal of course is how to scooter safely. Right. Um, but then you've, they've got to learn what the important features of the situation are. It's not just whether the car having the car come towards you, but, can the car see you? So sometimes you want to be on the right side. Um, so yeah, you're going to have some variability and um, hopefully your principles can handle that. How would you construct a principle, one principle? And I know I put, I'm putting you on the spot here, but how might you construct one principle for your daughters that would, would basically roll into uh, dealing with cars on the roadway when they're, when they're scootering to scooter safely? Well, on the one hand, you want to improve your visibility of other cars, right? That's why typically why you go on the left side because you can see the car coming at you. Um, but you also want to increase your visibility to cars. Uh, so I guess I, I don't want to say one principle, but it's, you know, to be safe requires a couple of things, right? There's two things you want to, at least two things you want to do. Maximize visibility of cars and maximize visibility of you to other cars. That's perfect. So that sort of rolls up and that leaves a lot of variability. It doesn't say be on the left side or the right side. Mm -hmm. It just, it gives them that, that uh, set of guidelines or, or buoys that are out there that say, I need to think about 
Can a car see me? Can I see a car? Is it better for the other cars to see me or to me to see the other cars? Right. right. And, and you're, I think you're saying the, the default position should be you be visible to the cars first. Right. But I also think it's, it speaks to the fact that um, you have to take into account who you're teaching this to. Right. Um, Cause if I just, just told my children, increase your visibility and increase visibility to others. They're like, what? Right. So I might give them a couple rough guidelines that are good in most circumstances, but not all circumstances. Right. Be on the left side, except when going up a hill, get on the right side, but there's other factors. But So, so that's dealing with, with young people, with children in your case, right. with adults uh, in our circumstances, hopefully we can maybe just be a little bit, less specific and, and as, as Dalio does put those principles out there to help people think, Hey, I should be visible. I should be able to be seen. I should be able to see, okay, that's a good principle to deal with safe scootering. Right. So I think that's a great example of how we can, we can create our own principles in life to help guide our path. So John, as we talked about, you know, in this section, we see, uh, kind of the, uh, growth of his principles and um, the way in which he starts writing them down and presenting them to other people. Uh, so one interesting thing is, um, you know, by 2006, he had approximately 60 work principles. Uh, I believe he's got about 300 now. Um, so I think, you know, he's probably just continued to refine the things he's thinking and identifying them. Um, but we also see here, uh, as you start writing down these principles, um, you know, a lot of this is for the purpose of creating an idea meritocracy where the best ideas win. Uh, and one thing he's discovered is that he needed to increase transparency uh, in the company. Um, and he said, you know, without transparency, people could spin decisions any way they want. And now what he means by transparency I'm going to say at least at the organizational level um, is that people have access to almost any meeting that they want to have access to. Um, he pointed out initially, this was pretty easy when Bridgewater was smaller, they could just go in and just attend just about any meeting they wanted to. You could just show up. Yep. Wow. And uh, right. Imagine, right. If you, are, you know, whatever your current work environment is, not you, John, specifically, but our listeners, you know, whatever your work environment is, imagine, right, if your, you know, executives were having a meeting, you could just walk in and sit down, you know, without an invitation, um, just literally an open door policy for their, the meetings. Uh, that's roughly the scenario they had. But as the company got bigger, he realized that just wasn't practical. One, you know, you you have so many people, you have so many meetings going on, you can't attend all of them. And you have conflicts where if you're at one meeting, you can't be at another meeting. Yeah, that would really grind things to a halt, right? If everybody was just going to everybody else's yeah. meetings all the time, it'd be like, oh, we can only have one meeting per hour <laughs> for every hour of the day. That would, that, but I guess that's not, obviously, that's not uh, feasible or even logical to try and do. Right. And so he still wanted transparency. Um, and so the way to do that was do video recordings, right? Record each meeting. Um, or as he says, right, there are some very rare exceptions. Um, not everything is recorded. So he talked about, um, couple scenarios. One was, 
Um, if it was a really personal matter, like maybe health issues or something mm-hmm. like that, or uh, if there was proprietary information that was going to be shared in the meeting that you really needed to make sure was secret uh, that didn't get out, then that would not be recorded. Yeah, I think it's easy to imagine that there are just some things that are going to go on within a company or any any group even. Take it outside of a company, right? Extend it to like... Um, uh, a, 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 a group uh, like your soccer club or your church or, you know, any sort of other group where there are going to be meetings that just need to happen with a certain amount of, of secrecy to them, either because, like you said, you're protecting somebody's personal, very personal details and very personal information, or because there are times when it's, it's important to the operation of the unit that things not be exposed at a certain point in time. But this is, I mean, really, this is a sort of a radical idea because this is not like anything I've really ever heard of or seen in any sort of a company before. I mean, I I can remember accidentally one time when I was a young person starting in my career, I wandered into a meeting that uh, I thought I was invited to that was with with some people that were maybe a level or two higher than me in the company. And they're like, what the hell are you doing in here? You know, they kind of scooted me (laughs) out of that meeting. And I was like, oh, okay, sorry. I showed up at the wrong place. (laughs) Yeah. um, Was what they were really going to talk about something that I shouldn't have known about? I don't know. Maybe it would have benefited me. And I think that's that's the idea here is that people can make better decisions and operate more effectively with more information rather than less. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and one of the things he said is, if you don't have transparency, people can spin the decisions that get made in those private meetings any way they want, right? They can say, oh, well, you know, the real reason they decided to do X was because, you know, it's going to benefit them or it's going to benefit their family as opposed to the company. Um, but if it's open, right, if it's recorded, people can be in there and see what the reasonings were that were given, you know, you're not going to get that spin. Um, Right. For one, right. Suppose someone does want to spin it. They could go to their coworker and say, Oh yeah. Did you hear about why they made that decision? Well, now the coworker can go, eh, I'm not so sure. Let me go look at the recording. Um, There's another side to that too, where you might find in, in organizations where if, if a, if a group of leaders aren't all in, in a, a agreement, real agreement on a path forward, some people might passively agree without being in true agreement, knowing full well that their intentions are not going to be to carry out the true letter of what has been agreed to. You know, we're going to make some change in the organization and here's how we're going to roll it out. And they'll say, yes, I'm on board. I'm going to do that thing and then come out of the meeting and not do it. This is another uh, circumstance where that wouldn't be able to fly because everybody would, would have that recorded information that said, oh, you agreed this is what you agreed to. We're not doing that thing. Why is that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, a couple of things that I find interesting about this. Um, so one is uh, to what degree does distrust play in the need for transparency? Uh, so here, and I'm going to say for organizational transparency. Uh, so I'm going to separate that out from when he talks just about radical transparency about, you know, you being open with other people about, what you think about them or about a situation. That's one thing. But as far as I'm going to say, organizational transparency, where 
people are allowed to be in every meeting or you, know, you can have a video recording of the meeting, right? If we could trust other people, if we trust, could trust they had good intentions, then it seems like the recording, that kind of transparency wouldn't be as necessary. Now, but not necessarily. I, I, could, I could see you know, there might be some other benefits of the transparency in that, well, if I don't know what was decided in a meeting, I might not be able to give as good, as good a feedback, right? I might, if I listen to a meeting and I hear the reasons they give for their decision, I might be able to come back and say, hey, you know, I hear, heard what you all said. I heard why you made your decision. Let me give you some other considerations that might change your opinion. So you may want transparency just for the purpose of getting better decisions. Certainly, Ray talks about that a lot. Um, so transparent, organizational transparency may not be a factor just of mistrust. I wonder, I wonder, Micah, if it's, if it sort of even alleviates the need for there to be trust, not like I shouldn't trust, but that I no longer have to worry about trusting what you tell me when you come out of a meeting, because, um, you know, it's like, well, if, why would Micah not tell me what is said because what was said or how it was said, because I could just go listen to the recording or why would I even ask you or inquire to you or listen to what you have to say about it when I could just go listen to or watch a recorded instance of that meeting myself and get the same information. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I wonder, does that, does that just like take the worry of mistrust sort of off of the table and then just allow us to be like extremely trusting or do we just like stop worrying even at that level about right. trust? Yeah. You might say, is it really even trusting at all anymore, right? Like you said, because if everything is out in the open, is trust even a thing, right? Because there's nothing that's concealed that you have to say, well, I'm going to just trust that they've told me the truth. There's So one question might be, is there a loss of some kind of value? Hmm. Uh, is there some kind of loss of value in relationships, right, if we take trust out of it? Um, and that kind of leads me to the kind of the other thought I had about um, the transparency and in particular his um, allowing for exceptions. So my question is, what was the justification for the exceptions? Um, given that, right, much of idea meritocracy and radical transparency is the goal of success. Are these exceptions for that purpose? Does he think we're going to improve our success by not recording these particular meetings, um, you know, personal health issues or um, topics, uh, scenarios, or proprietary information. It seems like in the case of proprietary information, the idea is, yeah, we want to preserve the success or promote the success of the company. If this gets out, that would be really bad. Right. Um, but the private issues or personal issues, does he think that ultimately that's still going to make the company more successful by having these exceptions or is there some other good, some other value that he's wanting to promote or retain uh, perhaps at the cost of greater success? So I just want to curious if he sees that as a, you know, in conflict in values. That, in that sounds case. like a, a point to ponder. Yeah. We operate the podcast on the value for value model. 
We are entirely listener supported. If you enjoy the podcast and find value in the information and entertainment you receive, you can donate to the podcast on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash Dalio's Principles and click support this podcast. There are even more ways to support the show. You can dazzle all of your friends with information learned on the show and share the show with them on social media. Also, you can review us on iTunes. It'd be awesome if you blog about it or even talked about our podcast on your very own podcast. And you can always direct your friends to our subreddit at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash Dalio's principles. And now back to the show. And I wonder too, and I think Micah, that probably as a, as an organization would do this sort of a thing that you have to be very uh, explicit uh, about what are the things that are, are going to be private in, in this, in this world of radical transparency so that there's a very clear delineation between this is a thing that should be private versus this falls into the category of everything that we make transparent uh, so that there can't be any sort of, um, what would you call it? Like um, playing game, gamifying, gamifying this in a way where it's like, yeah, this is supposed to be transparent to everyone, but we're going to say it needs to be private because, you know, so you've, you've probably have to be very explicit with, with uh, drawing those boundaries. Right. Of course, then you still have to trust that that's, you know, someone's not making up the excuse yeah. for the, you know, what the real reason was for it being private. Right. Sure. They could say, well, we've got to discuss a health issue and it wasn't a health issue at all. There is that. Okay. Yeah. So there, there's trust that there's, <laughs> we, we, here comes trust again. So yeah. the trust is back on the table. Okay. So let's go on to maybe talk a little bit about the psychometric testing. And I'm sure as a, as a guy from the philosophy world, you, you have a lot of things to at least say about, uh, psychometric testing. I would say that I first became introduced to this probably 10, 10 years ago or so when I, when I, for the first time took the Myers-Briggs personality assessment, which is the thing that in the book Dalio talks about is his, also his introduction to psychometric testing. And so you want to uh, tell us a little bit about Myers-Briggs for those that maybe. Uh, haven't ever taken the assessment or are not familiar with it, Micah? Yeah. Uh, so, so one, uh, Myers-Briggs, the psychometric testing is more in the realm of psychology as opposed to, right, my background is philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and I'm not confusing them. I'm just saying that there's, that, you know, that's probably interesting still as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, as a philosopher concerned with truth, right, there's also the question about how the mind works and how we kind of get at the truth, uh, with our brains. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I was introduced to Myers-Briggs, uh, my freshman year in college and I loved it. I ate it up. Um, I even got the book, please understand me too. I think it was what it was. And, you know, I read, I think pretty much every page, you know, about just all of the different personalities. So, uh, I am an INTP. Okay. Um, okay. So, I, so there's four kind of yeah each person gets four letters uh the first you are either an i or an e you're either an introvert or an extrovert uh second you are either an n or an s so intuitive or sensing i still have a struggle with completely understanding that distinction uh 
Third is a thinker or feeler. And then P is uh, perceiving and J or J P or J perceiving or judgmental. It's kind of like, you know, do you like to look at all the options or do you like to make decisions quickly? Yeah. I'm definitely a P. Um, So you're introverted, you're um, intuitive, intuitive thinking and, and perceiving. Yes. So I'm slightly extroverted, intuitive. I could see that. Thinking and judgmental. The only two things. Uh, definitely the judgmental. I absolutely. <laughs> you damn right. The, the only two things that have, and I've taken this test multiple times. Maybe you have as well. The only two, the only things that have ever changed for me, I, I'm close I and E. So I'm like in the middle there. So it goes a little bit back and forth. And the same thing with the, uh, the J and the T. I go back, uh, J and the P, sorry, the J and the P, I go a little bit back and forth between those two, but the N and the T are like solid. They don't move. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the very first time I took, it, I was an ISTP and, um, ever since then I've always been an INTP. What do you, what do you think it means that, uh, that you can have different results when you, when you take the sort of a psychometric test? Right. Does um, it mean that they're non-deterministic? Yeah, I don't know. So there is, you know, there definitely are some criticisms of Myers Briggs, um, which I didn't realize real, really realize until the last maybe couple of years. Um, there's a, an article out I read recently, just kind of as a preparation for this podcast. I'll just admit that um, by Adam Grant. Uh, I've listened to a few podcasts of his. He's pretty interesting. He's an organizational psychologist, so he's concerned with like how people interact at work and how to improve those interactions. Um, and he has an article called Goodbye to MBTI, Myers-Briggs Testing Something, uh, the, pat, the fad that won't die. Um, <laughs> and uh, so he talks about one of the problems with Myers-Briggs um, is that it's unreliable. He says there's a 50% chance that your type will be different if you take it five weeks later. Yeah. Um, and then another thing he talks about, and we'll raise this because we'll come to it later, but he says it also seems to be invalid in that it doesn't predict outcomes that matter. And we'll see Ray kind of runs into some problems related to this. Um, but, um, you know, I, it, I think there's definitely much to be gained by the personality types, at the very least, just to recognize the various kind of personality types that can be out there, even if people aren't, you know, really fixed. You know, you have just one personality type and that's what you'll always be um even if people can fluctuate and sort of thing just to see the different ways in which people interact with their environment the different ways they process things you realize you know when someone else is doing something in a way that you would never think about it it's not because they're trying to necessarily be lazy or you know they're not necessarily dumb it's just they perceive the world in a little bit different way than you do um and i think it maybe creates a little bit more humility in you that okay some people just aren't like me. I've heard some people say of the Myers-Briggs personality assessment that it's, it's nothing more than uh, fancy astrology. Like you're a Gemini, you're an Aries and reading your uh, reading about your astrological sign, which I don't agree with at all. I think that there's much more to it than that. Uh, and then there are people that are very steadfast and and very much behind it as it is, you know, to the point where it's 
it's a fun, it becomes a fundamental thing in their life where they have this realization that they, they are embodied or represented by those initials that they, you, you get from the test. And then that really truly like motivates and, and guides everything that they do. I think most people probably fall somewhere in that inside of that spectrum where they feel like when they, after they've taken the test, they have that feeling like, Hey, this talks to me in a certain way. And it, it, if nothing else tells me something about myself that I've learned that I can learn from and use as data about myself. Yeah. Um, yeah. A couple of things. So one, um, when I took the test, I read up about, you know, when I was in college and one of the things that, so when I was in college for my undergraduate, actually I studied to be a pastor. And one of the things that uh, the test said was that INTPs typically don't like to lead people, right? You know, be administrators over people and telling them what to do. And I was like, well, you know, pastors typically are doing that kind of yeah. thing, right? It's very administrative roles uh, in a lot of ways. And uh, I talked with my professor about you it. You are said, the shepherd of a flock, are you not? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, uh, I'm not so sure this is going to be, you know, if this, if this is right, uh, this may not be a good career for me. And uh, look where I'm not. <laughs> right. I'm not a pastor. So, um, but just did that, interesting. Do you think that did that fundamentally change your mind at that point? Was that like a revolutionary or evolutionary moment for you? Um, I think really what it did is it validated some thoughts I had had. You know, I kind of knew I didn't really enjoy leading people, um, but it didn't change my projection at that point. You know, I still was pursuing it, but. I, it also allowed it to be in the back of my mind that, okay, maybe something else will be out there that would be a better fit for me. You, you fell into that camp of it made sense to you based on what you knew about yourself, but you also maybe learned some additional things about what that meant for you. Right. That's which, interesting. Yeah. Which is actually kind of one kind of funny thing to me about the test, right? So if you take the Myers-Briggs test, it asks you questions about yourself. You tell it, right? You write down the answers and then they tell you based on what you told them, what you are. It's like, okay, I just told you what I am. You're just repeating it. They're really just kind of categorizing it is the way I think about it. As long as you're being, you're answering honestly. And that's what I've always tried really hard to do is just sort of give reactionary answers to the questions rather than trying to think about them and think about, well, what does the test want me to say? You know, Mm -hmm. what does somebody else want me to be or or who are other people expecting me to be and that sort of thing? Or who do I want to be, right? I don't want to be like that. I'm not going to answer that way. I need to be a pastor. Therefore, I need to be an E. So I need to (laughs) E all of these questions somehow. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so that was one thing. Now, the other thing is, uh, so Adam Grant, the professor who has this article about the problem with Myers-Briggs, he doesn't say get rid of it entirely. Uh, but he points out there's a couple other, um, I don't know what you want to call them, uh, I guess personality frameworks, if you will, sure. that incorporate much of Myers-Briggs, but they add on a couple other things that make up for deficiencies in Myers-Briggs. So there's one that's called the Big Five, and then there's another one that's called Hexaco. Big Five adds in a con- uh, the topic of emotional stability versus reactivity. Mm. and then Hexaco adds in honesty and humility. Anyways, you know, you know I didn't want to misrepresent Grant's position here, right? He's not saying get rid of Myers-Briggs or personality types in general, but there's better testing that can be done. And there's, I think, for folks that are listening, if they haven't done this test, there are some online resources that you can find where you can, you can take the test. 
Some of them are even free, though I think the ones that are extensive and most reliable are paid for. So if you're interested, you can go out there and find resources to take and, and find out what your MBTI personality assessment says about you. Right. And I, so one of the interesting thing is, um, so kind of transitioning to this talk about baseball cards, but, uh, so Ray, um, one of the things he found was even though he was having his managers take these Myers-Briggs tests, he still wasn't getting the outcomes that he would expect out of them. Um, and I think this actually speaks to the invalid critique of Myers-Briggs and that it, um, right. The invalid critique is that, um, it doesn't predict outcomes that matter. And he was thinking that by looking at their Myers-Briggs type, he would be able to fit uh, managers into the correct roles. And he wasn't getting the outcomes that he expected. And so then he came up with this idea of baseball cards. And the idea is you could list people's stats and talk about what is it that they're good at? What's their, what are they bad at? So you might say like just a couple of examples, like degree of creativity, uh, their ability to discern the big picture, right? Some people are really fine grained. They're kind of trees people. And then some people are forest people, right? And um, uh, yeah, they details oriented, that sort of thing. And so then you could rate people on these various traits and this would be public. And the idea is you could better position people for success because you knew what they were actually good at. Maybe, and, and also maybe uh, as you're interacting with people, understanding how best to interact with someone or, or how best to, um, to uh, work with them, interact and work with them as you're, as you're going through that journey of learning about someone and, and starting to have a relationship with them, a working relationship with them, that these, these traits tell you something and and help you be aware of how is the best way for John and Micah to, to work together or for Micah and Sally to work together, et cetera. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's really could help you play to your strengths as opposed to feeling like you have to do everything well. Right. So to go with the baseball analogy, right. Someone who's kind of a skinny baseball player and feels like he needs to hit home runs because those produce the most, you know, those produce the most runs. Um, but if they realize, no, I'm not a home run hitter. You know, I just hit singles and doubles, and that's what I do. They can feel comfortable with, okay, I'm going to stay within my strengths and try and do that best instead of you know, striking out a lot, trying to hit, hit, hit home runs even when I can't. So using that, since that's actually the title of what it's called, the baseball card, extending that analogy into the, into the world of sports and also into the world of business, um, I think people would have some hesitancy here to want to have a baseball card about themselves, uh, even though professional athletes have them all, all the time, obviously. And, and today in today's world, I mean, there is no like static baseball card. Well, they, they, maybe they still have them for collecting purposes, but you can go out online and find out like, you know, really detailed stats on, on professional athletes today. So to do that for individuals, I would imagine that people would, would be somewhat, reserved about oh no somebody's going to find out that i'm not the greatest home run hitter and and are my other stats well represented enough to justify me on the team you know i'm like am i a great defensive player or am i a great support player or that sort of thing and in equating that of course to positions within uh an organization or or, or 
a, a work environment. Mm-hmm. And I think it was concern about, you know, can I trust that other people are going to rate me accurately, right? It'd be that someone doesn't like me. And so they say, this person's not creative at all, even if they really are creative. Um, how can you trust that those scores are going to be generated accurately? That's, that's a great point because it's not just a, a black and white evaluation of I got a hit or I ex- uh, successfully fielded the ball or I got a tackle or I shot the puck into the net. It's something much more um, subjective. Where it's oh did did Micah speak well in the meeting today or did he did he really think through what he was proposing as his idea right so it's other people giving you scores and yeah. evaluations like gymnastics maybe right yeah well and as a former professor you know we used to have student evaluations at the end of the year you would get very conflicting evaluations right they would say he was very clear someone else would say. I didn't understand one thing this guy said, right? <laughs> and so it's like, uh, how do I, how do I take these into account, right? Does it does it have any value given I'm giving these, getting these conflicting reports? I don't, I don't, I'm not sure how much we've gotten into this yet within the context of the book, but there's this concept of of believability that plays heavily into this from the perspective of of doing this at the. In, in the environment that is laid out in uh, with Bridgewater, with the principles and the, and all of that, it's like, well, if you, if somebody gave you a student evaluation that said, I didn't understand a word the professor said, uh, but maybe, he, maybe English was not the first language for that individual. Would they really have a belief, a high level of believability to your ability to convey ideas? I think most people would say not as high as a, an, an, a native English speaker would just in general terms. And I'm making a lot of assumptions there. Right. But that's sort of this context or this, the the idea of believability, right? How much can I believe what someone else is saying about me? One of, one of the resources was we're just about out of time, but to share with the listeners, Mike is that Ray Dalio did a Ted talk where he uh, demonstrates how his company uses their, uses their culture and the, and the capabilities that they've created to, to do this rating, to give people their baseball cards and to assess people's believability. So one of the things we can do is include that the link to raise Ted talk in, in the, in the show notes for this episode so that uh, our listeners can go out and, and watch that and learn some more about what all that looks like and what that is. Good idea, John. All right, let's, let's wrap this up with uh, our points to ponder then for our episode, Micah, and I think you had one down here. Why don't you go first with your point to ponder? I did, and it, uh, it doesn't, well, it's based off of something we actually didn't touch, but um, you know, Ray talks about um, during this period, there was you know, signs that a depression was coming in you know, around 2008, and he, he said, um, in reference to that, he said, I was both, now both 30 years more knowledgeable and a whole lot less confident, um, you know, Harkening back to the '80s when he predicted, "Oh yes, this depression is coming." It's I know it certain, and so in the 2000s he said, "All right, I see these signs. Looks like it's depression's coming," but he was actually a whole lot less confident. One point to ponder is of the important things you think you know. So, for example, about the meaning of life, what's worth pursuing, what's good in life, and so on. Why do you think that you know them? Um, and hmm. a follow-up question might be, "What's your basis?" for thinking that those things are true. Very good. 
Uh, so mine is less of, I guess, a point to ponder and more of like homework to do for people. If you want to think more about yourself and you, you know what your MBTI is, or if you have a desire to find out what it is to do that. And, and then to think about what you, what your baseball card might look like on top of what you got out of your, your MBTI assessment and maybe even doing the, the things separately is I did this exercise about a year and a half ago where I sat down and I thought about what are all of the things that, what are all of the skills that are important to me in my job and how would I give myself a score like from one to 10 as what is the scale that I used on those skills and, and just thought about them and, and, and reflected on those things to consider, huh, Oh, which of these skills are really important to me? Which one should I consider getting better at? And just sort of using that as a as a way to help me figure out what do I need to do to improve and evolve as as an individual. So a thing for people to consider maybe trying out and doing. Interesting. Thanks. All right. So the next time we'll be back with Chapter 6. Thanks for listening. Let's keep the conversation going on our subreddit, Dalio's Principles at reddit.com. The subreddit is Dalio's Principles, all one word. Join us to interact with a community of like-minded individuals. 